This is part two of Steve Lawson. Enjoy, folks. Why do you think we, not we, why do you think there's this disproportionate thing with old music? Like why, that's the one thing I don't understand. And I was thinking about this because I, you know, there's a lot of music in the night. Like, you know, what's weird about the nineties, man. Um, I think about this a lot because I started playing bass in 1989 and I definitely feel like a lot of the music that influenced me was stuff that was happening in that moment, you know, like circa 1991, Fishbone, Living Color, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Faith No More, Primus, all those bands were gateway bands that got me into stuff like jazz. I mean, through the Red Hot Chili Peppers, I checked out the meters and then you had all these other things going on in the 90s where like like one thing i did uh because my friend had this conversation with me once like he he said if you want to see what was happening in the 90s google the year year in music 1991 and look at how many like ridiculously influential records came out that year and and you know like we're talking like Low End Theory by Tribe Called Quest yeah. coming out the same day as like Bad Motor Finger, which came out the same day as like Blood Sugar Sex Magic. So it seemed like, and then, you know, and, and that, that was just one particular year in the, in the 90s. Like there's all these other records that, you know, like somehow have never really disappeared from what people are discussing. Like uh, even like stuff that's sort of more, uh, I wouldn't call it niche, but definitely things that are not as well known, like j- the two jellyfish records or like uh, yeah. Jeff Buckley Grace or, uh, you know what I mean? Like there's, there's well, just seen, there was a real, real like push of like interesting music that came out. And then I don't know. So this is kind of what I was, was, what I was asking about before, like, because there's not really a central place does, has that hurt the perception of like new music being created? Do you think because well, there isn't? I, if, if we were having this conversation with somebody who was ten years older than us, they'd be saying exactly the same thing about the early eighties. They'd be talking about the new wave and post punk as being this incredible kind of fertile ground. And if they were twenty years older than us, they'd be talking about prog and fusion and what happened in the seventies. Because there is a moment in your late teens when you build a soundtrack when you have the discretionary time and the cultural context where you can accumulate uh, symbolic and uh, cultural capital by knowing about stuff as a teenager. Because that, that, half of our friends were doing it with football and baseball, and they were learning, they were memorizing, you know, American football stats or hockey stats or rugby stats or whatever. And what we did was we did it with music, and we got obsessed with it. And... There, was a, there were a number of things that intersect here. The fact that in the physical media age, you had to invest in it or you had to go somewhere to hear a thing made it higher friction and therefore feel more valuable. I think that's part of what happens with Bandcamp, to be honest. Yeah. The, the fact that the investment is higher friction means that people feel like they've done more. That, that having access to everything is a poison chalice. It is. So, so that's one side of it. Uh, two, is so nostalgia has always been more powerful. Like Like it's all any marketer will tell you that it's always easier to sell to resell somebody something they already they already love that's why 
you know, when you look, when you're on Facebook and you, you buy, uh, uh, you know, a, a three bar electric heater or a tap and all of a sudden all your adverts are for more taps. It's like, like you're starting a tap collection. Like not, you're just fixing one in your kitchen. It's like, no, I'm fucking obsessed with taps. All I want is taps now. <laughs> but the reason for that is that, that everything in marketing knows that, that reselling somebody something they already care about and know about is easier than trying to convince them of a new thing. That's always been hard. So, but that the, the, the total shift of all culture towards that was a political and cultural thing and technological thing that happened at the end of the 80s. Because if you think about music gear, for example, that through the 80s, new gear really mattered. And the thing what, that happens when brand new gear matters is that it, start, it supports an entire kind of ancillary economy alongside the music itself, that music making suddenly becomes an incredibly valuable pursuit. And so through the 80s, there were people were replacing pickups in strats with active pickups, things that now would be seen as sacrilegious. Into the 90s, those companies really struggled because technology wasn't at the point where, like there was a point between the Bradshaw rack at the end of the 80s and the advent of really good modeling technology at the beginning of the, the, the 2000s. So through the 90s, when vintage gear sounded so much better than anything else that was available. And lots and lots of bands were using it, from Oasis to whoever, you know, that, 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 that modern rock or mainstream rock got very retro in its sound. So suddenly you had the death of, an, of, of, of a bit of the kind of music-making economy. You had innovation put, got pushed in a different direction. But also, magazines suddenly became quite problematic in their in their, what was going to sustain them because they needed new gear to advertise in them in order to sell them. Yeah. So they suddenly had to focus on pushing rock superstardom at a certain point because that's what would sell copies in the magazine. Whereas previously, they could be more niche and the, the adverts for um, Lexicon and Zoom processors would have kept them going. And I think we're kind of back there now. We're back in a place where music technology is is at least as popular for music making as vintage gear. We're in an amazing place right now. Pedals and instrument design and technology is uh, such a ridiculous level. Um, so there is a, a fund available to make online stuff possible. So you have a whole proliferation of sites that are funded by advertising of music gear online. But so all of these different things intersect that it's incredibly complex. So we've got nostalgia, we've got a late modernity happening and it's, and it's obsession with newness. And then that trans that, that crossing over into an obsession with retro things, but we also have political instability and the fact that in politically unstable times, people go back to the music of their childhood to feel like they have something that they understand. And, in the 80s, that's not what happened. In the 80s, what happened for a large part of the youth was that they wanted their own soundtrack. And so we had punk and hip hop came along and told us what the world was like. So you had, whether it was Black Flag or Public Enemy, you had somebody telling you what the world was like from, a, from, a, from an angle that wasn't CNN. And, uh, and we kind of, that sort of vanished. And part of that is to do with the fact that it hasn't vanished, it's just become less visible because more people are doing it, but doing it to smaller audiences. So a scene like Grime in the UK 
which is ex an extraordinary kind of on a musical and political and social and cultural level. Grime is this incredible uh, wave of creative output, but also of political uh, commentary on what's happening in Britain. If you want to understand what's been going on in Britain for the last 10 years, just dig into, into a, the top 10 or 15 grime rec records of the decade and you'll get an account that will that will match what was happening in hip hop in America in sort of 85 to 95. But they've just sold a lot less. There's been much more niche because they didn't have exactly like you were saying, they didn't have that, that point of coming together that, that, that MTV provided. And we don't have these magazines that everybody buys now that we have this mass proliferation of media. So you have YouTubers that have 13 million subscribers. Like that's, that's an incomprehensible size of audience to when you think about media in the old days, because TV was the only thing that had that kind of scale of audience. TV and Rush Limbaugh in the States. <laughs> yeah, um, TV and Rush Limbaugh, movies. Yeah, um, yeah. And that, but, but, but movies, were, movies could never be reactive because it took too long to make a film. Yeah. So movies were never reflecting what was happening in the moment. I guess Stern too, Howard Stern and, and uh, any of the syndicated radio shows. Yeah, God, I remember when I first, first coming out to the, to the States and hearing Howard Stern and being like, why the fuck is anybody listening to this rubbish? Like, this is, this yeah. is the most moribund, painful shit to listen to because I had no context for what, for, for there, there, it was one of those kind of encounters with a bit of American culture that felt so <laughs> completely alien. And I was like, oh, this, this just makes no sense. The FM radio DJ thing, like every, you know, there was always a bunch of, uh, you can tell it by the kind of compression they use too, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah. like, you know, there's usually like three people on these morning shows and they always have some kind of name like the morning zoo or fucking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, you're in the radio asylum with wild, you know, and, and then they play <laughs> like the same 10 fucking songs and. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that whole thing is that I, I can imagine just coming from someplace else and then hearing like Howard Stern I, at, I, at that I, point, I, like I, what he was doing at that point. Not, I mean, he's he's actually a very great interviewer. Like I, I, yeah, I, I, you I, know. I, I can't. I, I, I hold grudges for a long time. So I can't <laughs> like like whenever people yeah. link to stuff he's doing now, and I'm like, no, fuck that guy. Like, no, he's done. <laughs> like I. I was I was I was into cancel culture before it was cool. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's a strange thing, right? Like, like how that whole thing works. Like, I I definitely think uh, it's it's strange because a lot of things that you know, there's there's things that people do. I, like, I find this interesting now. How how uh, it's harder sometimes now to separate the art from the artist. You know. Um, yeah, even and, it, even and, if, and it's it's funny, it's funny how people, some people. I mean, do you, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Um, I don't know because you know, like I, I don't know this man personally, so I can't speak. I don't know if he's a horrible person or not, but like, there's definitely people that don't. There are people that claim that like Keith Jarrett's not like the greatest dude, you know, like in terms of just interacting with him. Yeah, and stuff. yeah, yeah. But then Keith Jarrett's like this amazing musician. I never really like Keith Jarrett's candor in interviews when he talks about yeah, like yeah, electric yeah. miles stuff. I always felt like, man, you know, he was there so he can say whatever he wants about, it, you know? So yeah. it's not, I'm not, I got no skin in that game at all. I'm just someone enjoying the story, but it, I've always felt like his Ben, maybe there's just a clip that they keep playing where he sort of, it's almost like he's like, man, I was just 
happy to be there. I didn't like the music and um, that's totally fair, but I don't know anything about Keith Jarrett, but I've, I know people that like won't listen to him because they think he's like, they feel X, Y, Z about it. I know there's people who take it to a different level. There's people that won't watch Woody Allen films because they don't agree with. Yeah. yeah. And, and, I, and, I, and I, th- I think it's, it, those are two really interesting examples because with Keith, there's nothing present in his work that, that reflects in a concrete way whether or not he's an asshole. Like, yeah. like in the same way, like, because I find that with Miles, that I'm pretty sure that Miles Davis and I wouldn't have got on if we'd met. I think he would have thought I was a dick and I'm pretty sure the, other, the opposite would have also happened. Yeah. But his music has changed my life. And, I, and, I, and it's funny because there are bits of, of his abrasiveness that are, that, that are there in the music. And there's bits of his work that like, it's funny being like, if you uh, looking at like the history of the influence of, of drugs on music and kind of going, well, there were certain drugs that, you know, really mess up people's personalities mm-hmm. and yet have resulted in some incredible music. And you kind of have to hold that intention and go, well, yeah, that sounds like Coke music, but I don't want to be around anybody who's on Coke because it instantly turns you into a wanker. Like, it's like <laughs> you just, I, I can't be around somebody telling me how great they are again and again and again. So no, I don't want to be around anybody on Coke but I'm not going to start boycotting all records that were ever made on Coke. Um, cause that, cause that would get weird. But I do think that, that there are times when the association between a particular artist and their work does, uh, does greatly shape what they were doing. And because uh, apart from anything else, you can sometimes, you can sometimes re revisit somebody's work and realize that your take, your interpretation of it was completely wrong as happened with Morrissey. That I think a oh, lot of us right. looked, yeah, at, looked at Morrissey stuff and went, and what we heard as being the kind of outsider aesthetic in his thing and him and him identifying with other outsider cultures was actually him just being a massive fucking racist. Yeah. And like, you know, and, and, and I remember, and I spoke to some friends who at the time were uncomfortable with it. And I was kind of realized that I wasn't listening. Like back then I wasn't listening to the people who were, who were hearing it and going, no, no, that's not ironic. He's genuinely trying, you know, Bengalian platforms, you know, and the line, it's hard enough when you belong here. And it's like, you know, that's really, that really is a horrible sentiment. <laughs> There's no way of slicing that. That isn't. Yeah. And I, so, so for me, and I was a massive Smiths fan, and I'm still a huge Johnny Marr fan, but I just, you know, given that I, I, choose, like, I, don't, I don't sit here and kind of, intentionally not listen to the smiths i don't go right i'm going to sit in silence and this is an hour that when i would have been listening to the smiths but instead i'm going to listen to nothing so i'm listening to the anti-smiths I just <laughs> i just don't turn it on because i don't want to hear his voice i don't want to listen to somebody who who puts that stuff into the world and this is the thing that we make these connections this is back to the storytelling thing and it used to be that the media did the storytelling for us so this is back to your thing about success and popularity that all of those records that you were talking about the kind of Fishbone, uh, um, Living Colour, King's X, Soundgarden, you know, there, there was, it was an explosion of interest happening in rock, partly because rock had got incredibly stale at a certain point. And that as mainstream rock bands discovered what had been happening in hardcore in America for quite a while, that bands like the Minutemen and Fugazi and, and Husker Du were already making this incredibly interesting music. And some of those innovations crossed over. Yeah, I saw Fugazi um, a bunch. Oh, really? Wow. 
Because oh, I grew geez. up, you know, I grew up right outside Washington, D.C. Yeah, yeah of and, course. Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, my friends, admittedly, you know, I love Fugazi now. I think for me, part of it was also, well, it's only five bucks to go watch them play <laughs> yeah, or, yeah. or free sometimes. Yeah, but, yeah, But, like, those guys, you know, like, one of my best friend, he, he there's, there's famous footage of them playing in front of the White House. Um, yeah, yeah. And he's, he, he, he's in some of that footage just, like, because he was, like, oh, right wow. up front on stage. But, um. That, that whole thing, man, like the, there was Fugazi and then there was this organization in DC called Positive Force. Yeah, yeah. And it was like real, it was very much rooted in activism and stuff. Like my, my group of friends in high school. There were go-go artists connected to that as well, weren't there? Yeah, there was like, I, th- I think so. I don't know to what extent it's kind of punk their reach was, sort of, but it was a yeah, big yeah. part of it. Hmm. Um, like, you know, there were, my, I have friends that were like way into the Smiths and I liked more of the hardcore stuff that sounded like mm. metal. Like I was into jazz and metal stuff. I didn't care. <laughs> yeah. I don't think I, I cared as much about, um, at that point I didn't care as much about the political stuff. Um, yeah. like I, I cared more about like how do the riffs sound and, well, you know, my, I think my, my introduction to politics and music was public enemy. That was like, you know, that was the point at which, yeah. which I started to actually, and it, so first of all, Public Enemy, and then a couple of years later, The Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy yeah. and Michael Franti. And that, that was, you know, I think uh, the, them and Billy Bragg, I guess, have probably been the, 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 the two that, that, that started me thinking along those kind of lines and about the idea that music could be this, this force uh, in that way. Um, and and, and I, so I, I discovered all that punk stuff very late, like, like you know, 10 years after it all happened, uh, if yeah. not more. Um, but, um, but, yeah, but, but, but if you think it so what, what was, what was the point? I was, I was talking about how those, those stories were told. So you had, you had MTV, but also VH1 and a couple of other video channels as outlets, but also mm-hmm. a bunch of magazines that acted as the hub of each of those scenes. I mean, when sure. I think about how, how much music I discovered through bass player that in the nineties, when it was the only bass magazine around before bassists started in the UK and I started writing for them. There was a ton of stuff that I that I would discover through reading about in the magazine and desperately want to hear. Like I probably heard of Michael Manwing five years before I actually got to hear any of his records. And I was I told him this recently. I um I remember walking into uh Sam Goody, which was a like Tower Records type shop in Watford, just outside London, and just browsing the racks. I kind of I was probably looking for Michael McDonald records <laughs> or something, and I found this and because because you wouldn't go looking for Michael Manwing records because you just you just didn't assume they would be there. And, and Thonk was on the shelf. And I remember it being, if, feeling like I discovered the Ark of the Covenant, like I was fucking Indiana Jones or some shit. And yeah, <laughs> like, I, was at Berkeley. I was at Berkeley when they came out. I remember because everyone was excited. It was like, this is his metal record because he's got, he's got uh, <laughs> Alex Alexander and Alex Skolnick. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and, uh, I had, and Steve Morse. Yeah. And, it's, had, and, it was, and it was an amazing record and it blew my mind. Yeah. I had but, the one called Drastic Measures, though. That was the one yeah. I had first. And um, one thing that was cool is, like, I saw him play. You know, I've never met Manring. He commented on something on Instagram a couple weeks ago, and I, like, kind of wrote I fanboyed. I was like, hey, man. You know, like, <laughs> you know because – but, like, I've never actually met him. So maybe one day when all this I think, is done. I, 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 I think you two would get on incredibly well, actually. I think I – think, yeah, I'd love to broker that at some point because he's. I mean, like I said, I've told. I've forgotten how many times I've played with him. We've yeah. toured together a whole lot. He's he's been 
at various times, you know, an incredibly dear friend, a huge inspiration on me musically, yeah. but also just a, a mentor and, and somebody who would advocate for me. And, and you know, I, I got, I, this is another one of those interesting things about when we talk about the accumulation of, of those different types of capital I keep talking about, this idea of symbolic and, and cultural capital and how you actually kind of become, attain status within a scene because online we think about it in terms of likes and clicks and whatnot, but actually the, by association and by other people actually who are already have an audience going into bat on your behalf, that that means an awful lot. I remember back in the early noughties, somebody getting in touch and saying, Oh, I found you. So this was, you know, kind of pre social media. So I got an email from somebody saying, Oh, I found you because Victor Wooten mentioned you in an interview in New Zealand. And I've never seen that interview. I've never found out what it was. I don't know if it was radio or TV or magazine or anything. And, but somebody had, he mentioned me, I th you know, cause we were, we were friends. I, I interviewed him in like 2000, I think. And we stayed in touch. And over the years, he's been hugely supportive of what, of what I do. And Michael Manning has, and Jimmy Hazlitt once took a pile of my CDs, CDs to Japan to try and get me gigs. Oh, that's cool. And that, that kind of support from within the community particularly when it's not immediately obvious what I do, uh, you know, in terms of how it connects with, with, you know, fusion or jazz or whatever, that it's, it's, it sits somewhere outside of that. And I've had those kind of people who've, who've been supportive of it. And, um, and a lot of that was, was uh, the access for, the, for that was being a journalist that writing for bassist magazine and then, bass guitar magazine and now bass player magazine that having had that and meeting those people and, and doing interviews with them and just getting on with them was great. But, but having those people step in and go, actually, here's a guy you should check out. Yeah. Um, at various times. There was, I was at a gig a couple of years ago. Um, maybe, I, maybe, yeah, maybe two years ago, almost exactly two years ago, I think up here. And Victor was, was playing with his band and he stopped in the middle of the gig and did this whole talk about how one of the things he loves about coming to Britain is, is, um, you know, the fact that we've got some amazing bass players here and one of those, one of my favorites is here tonight and it's Steve. And he said, and, and I'm going to play this piece in tribute to him. And obviously because it's him, I'm just going to make some stuff up, which was kind of lovely. And he did this absolutely extraordinary kind of 12, 13 minute long improv, which wove through a whole load of different things and was just amazing. And, but he, you know, he took time out of his gig to do that. And there would have been a ton of people in that room who had no idea who I was. There would have been a few of them who would have seen my name in a magazine and not really given a shit. Others who probably actively dislike what I do. That's that's only to be expected if you, you know, make whale noises with a bass. Um, but uh, but yeah, that that level of support has been has been hugely significant. And I think as a community, we need to get better at that. That social media makes that so easy to do, and. I, I mean, you'll have, you'll have seen this over the years that I spend an awful lot of time talking about what, what my favorite musicians are up to. Right. And some of them are friends, but I don't require that. It's not, it's not a swap. I don't go, Oh, I'll talk about your new record. If you talk about mine, I just spend an awful lot of time talking about things that I like and things that I can, I think I can do some, some good for that I think are valuable. So I talk about your music online. Cause I think you, I think both of your records are fabulous. Well, thank you. You know, I, I've appreciated all that stuff over the years all the support and the, the kind words um but 
but to t- to tie this back in with the thing about nostalgia and whatnot, the the social media algorithms feed nostalgia. So when I if I post a link to a record of yours that nobody's heard yet, yeah, the metric of value in that isn't visible. So this is back to what we were, what I was saying. So I'm I'm, I'm doing my my uh, my clever stand up routine here and tying all the threads together. No, that's cool. Um, <laughs> callback callback humor is the best. <laughs> but you remember remember we talked earlier on about how. Um, uh, you know the, the 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 different ways people play out social media is they either try and emulate the old record industry, or they get embedded in the metrics that are that are, are there to to measure advertising and attention. And actually, if ten people click on a on a on a post that I make of a record of yours and go through to it on Bandcamp and listen to it, that's a hugely valuable asset that could result in in ten hours of people's listening and you know a bunch of sales and whatnot. Whereas if I post a link to, while we're talking about it, Vivid by Living Color and go, here's a great record from, the, from you know, that I loved back in the day. It's going to get three, 400 likes and a whole bunch of conversation about how Living Color are quite rightly recognized as being one of the greatest bands of that era. And a bunch of people who already love a piece of music are going to talk about how much they already, already love it. And literally no, no value is going to come out of that at all to anybody. All it does is confirm those people who cynically think that all the good music happened years ago. And so we need to get hold of the fact that it's okay to post things where the value in the value in posting them isn't visible because, because it's easy to, to give into that and go, Oh, I'm just going to keep posting old Led Zeppelin videos because that's the stuff that, that does big numbers on Facebook. Um, when actually it's the repeated posting of new material and the level of, of, kind of chatter that can build up around that. And if four or five of, of, of your peers post about your new record, if some bass player from Boise, Idaho sees that and goes, oh, well, hang on a minute, Steve Lawson's talking about that and Michael Manning and Victor Wooten and Tony Gray and whoever, they've all mentioned it. Maybe I'll go and check it out. And at the end of those five posts, somebody goes to, goes to listen to it and approaches it with that thing we were talking about at the start where they come to it wanting to like it because they have this expectation that if they do like it, they are putting themselves in the same taste category as all of these bass players that they look up to. Um, but that, that suddenly becomes a thing that is of great value within the music economy. And you, you need so few of those interactions for it to suddenly become viable. But I have 280 subscribers on Bandcamp. And that, without all the rest of the kind of sales and bits that go on around Bandcamp, because I do make some money from uh, individual sales and the occasional CD, but just the subscription is worth about $10,000 a year to me. Wow. So that absolutely pays for the time it takes me to do any of that stuff. That, 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 that's that, the hourly rate that I get from making music in that context is pretty damn good. Um, yeah. That's great. And, and, and $10,000 a year on Spotify would require hundreds of thousands of monthly listeners. And the cost of getting those listeners would wipe out all of the profit. Yeah, I don't get, I think, you know, there's, I've read some articles where some people like artists will use it away. They'll use, they'll use that technology to figure out where their art, their audience is, you know, Ooh, like there's, yeah. there's like ways you can see who's listening to what. And I think if you're going to make, if you're going to use it as part of your strategy and that's where you just think a lot of your stuff is going to end up. Um, then I think, you know, people have to decide for themselves if that's, that's what they want to do. But I don't, 
I don't know, man. I think we're all. I, I think that's it's kind of what you have to do if you're going to try and make any value out of that because yeah. the listening is not where the value is. The only real value in it is metadata, is being able to gather that information about an audience and then target them for some other reason. That it's basically yeah. you're accumulating advertising data that you can then hit them with for something else. And if you don't do that, all you're doing is is feeding um, Spotify's kind of data hall because exactly. they can start to use your stats to associate your audience with other people that they might like. They, they, they're just going to use use people listening to you to point them to other artists who are going to use that data. Yeah. So I was never, to, just, yeah. to just stick your music up there and expect it to pay you is completely insane. Like it makes would, no sense at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely think though, going back to some other stuff, like I don't remember actively thinking about am I being advertised to, uh, even though obviously huh? on, on MTV, you know, you got commercials hmm. and stuff. Like I never really resented that part of it. And I don't know if it's because I was younger and there were less things that, that had my attention with media, but then also, you know, like so to, I'll contend that one of the greatest, I think we've talked about this, like one of the greatest magazines that there ever was was musician magazine. I think yeah. that, that was probably one of, and I, and I have a couple issues with me. Like I, I have, I'm one of those people that has like old magazines laying around just to read <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah. And, and sometimes like I like reading what was happening at that point. Some of the shit's really funny. Um, like there's some stuff in the classifieds, like you can pay a certain amount for someone to listen to your songs and assess them. And I was like, well, now you can do that for free <laughs> and get really, really un uncensored opinions about it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. but, um, I remember though when I started to read um, Bass Player magazine a couple years ago, and it was like there's a shit ton of ads in here, man. Like there's no, yeah. it's definitely like I, I'm noticing it now. And then because, you know, yeah. talk, go ahead. Well, just the, the economics of running a magazine now don't make any sense at all. I mean, yeah. you know, that the, the, they they work if you can tie them in with other things. So over here the big value for the magazine is in the relationship between the magazine and then the the base london bass show or the london guitar show that it's the relationship between the two that one becomes the advert for the other and i think bass player is now probably quite a cheap magazine to make because of the team is distributed it has no office it was bought by a bigger publisher um you know, and, and so they've, they've basically merged two different magazines and made them into one in order just for there to be one. Like, otherwise, they just wouldn't be a magazine. It would have just stopped because the old model was just too expensive. So, um, but I think what one of the, the thing about Musician Magazine is really interesting because there was a demand for that when, when there were limited outlets for writing about music, when when you had to get a gig with a magazine, being good at it was significant. So be, so there were great music journalists. There were great interviewers. And, you know, we've got friends who, you know, you interviewed John, John Herrera on here. Yep. And John's a pretty damn good writer about music. The, the, yeah, very much Chris, so. Chris GC is a great interviewer. Um, the Jim Roberts era of, of Bass Player magazine mm -hmm. produced some really, really great, great journalism. Um, and one of the real problems we have now and, and this this goes back to the thing about music from the 90s as well is that we now have this cover all concept of producing content and occasionally if we feel 
uh, if we're feeling particularly inspired, we'll refer to it as quality content. But we don't think of, of, of a lot of it as distinct art forms at which we're trying to get good and in which we're trying to invest much of our soul. So we don't see the production of video as being uh, um, art that we're doing. It's content that we're producing in order to get eyeballs as part of a funnel towards something that is art or something that pays the bills. And Mike Watt has this saying where he says that, that for the Minutemen, everything was either a gig or a flyer. So they were either doing the gig or they were pointing to the gig. And that was it. Everything had to be a gig or a flyer. And I find that really interesting when you think about what we do these days and, and how, how much of what we do is flyers and how little of what we end up doing is the gig. And I think for magazines, the shift from the, the shift between writing for print and writing for the web has been that when writing for print, the writing was the gig. And writing online is very often the flyer. That it's basically, it's just that to justify its existence, you need to end up writing, or, or video kind of works pretty much the same way. You have to write things in such a sensational way to get enough views to pay for it that it, it, it ceases to be functionally kind of literature. It just becomes polemic. So the, the friends of mine who make really good YouTube videos but end up having to give them really stupid titles in order to get people to click on them because YouTube demands clickbait, it's, I just think, God, we need a better system than this. Sure. This isn't, this isn't good. This isn't good when, when people who, who produce good content in one area end up producing bullshit because they need to get more sensational about what they're saying and they need to be more provocative with the statement that they're making at the start of a video which they then might go on and nuance but the thing that will get people to watch it and therefore to see the advert that pre-rolls it and therefore pay them is some horseshit and so we, we just end up with a a kind of visual landscape that's full of polemical aggressive binary statements about the way the world is. Don't play five string bass. Metal sucks. Why is all new music bad? Why does programming ruin? Why programming is ruining music? Why plugins is worse than analog? Like none of those things are useful statements or questions to look at. They're not, they're not the kind of provocation that you would have got in Musician Magazine because somebody would have looked at the influence of uh, um, plugins on music production or the, the development of skeuomorphic interfaces for uh, plugins that emulate the sound of classic equipment and, and how important it, the, the graphic design side of it is. There would have been something much more kind of involved and much more meaningful. And it's getting harder to find that writing because we have to do it within smaller communities because nobody, because those things never go viral. And so I think the fact that we have a media scape and a, and a, a, a world of, of social media metadata that rewards sensationalism. It rewards nostalgia and it promotes the, the resharing of, of stuff that people already love in exactly the same way that radio did. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's sort of the equivalent of, of, of classic rock radio. Sure. You know, there's only, there's only so many times you can listen to heart of the sunrise before you go, you know what, maybe yes, did some other records. <laughs> exactly. Like, Although I'd be happy to hear that song. Uh, <laughs> you know, cause like, cause that didn't get played as much 
Oh, was it roundabout? Which one was it? Was it, was it roundabout? There was one roundabout's of the, the one. Yeah, roundabout's yeah, yeah, the roundabout. that's the one, man. But um, yeah, I, there's not there, there was one classic rock station that was a huge market station in D.C. And sometimes on like a, every Sunday night they would play half of an album, and sometimes it would be like the less famous half, you know? Yeah, they play all the songs in a row, you know? So like side two of Synchronicity or yeah. side two of like Led Zeppelin four or side, you know what I mean? Like they would pick yeah. random stuff. And I always thought that was pretty cool because it wasn't a playlist, but now you're not really finding that as much, you know? No, I, but, you, but because you can do it yourself. Yep. Because, because that, that curation has now been abdicated. And so you, but what, what does do that curation for you now is the sidebar on YouTube. So you, so I went the other day to have a listen to Wolverine blues by entombed, which I hadn't heard in ages. And disappeared down an early '90s death metal, uh, um, so, yeah, 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 wormhole, and was digging into you know kind of a lot of the stuff that was happening around that time, and that wouldn't have been my choice if I if I if I'd pulled up Wolverine Blues from my iTunes, if my iTunes wasn't all on an external drive now, if I just pulled it up from there, I'd have just listened to it and then researched something else and probably listened to Suzanne Vega or I don't know you know whatever um, or something new. But which is what again? What back to Bandcamp again? The thing I love about Bandcamp is when I go into the Bandcamp app, all I've got there is the stuff I've bought, so it's all new music. So I don't ever kind of I'm never listening to you, and suddenly it says, "Dude, you need to listen to Heavy Weather again." I'm like, "No, I don't." <laughs> oh Bandcamp's, God, never gonna, Bandcamp's never going. Bandcamp's never going to go. Yeah, check out Led Zeppelin Four. Like that's not going to happen, yeah. because what's next in the what's next in the in the app is either alphabetical it's either the last thing i played or it's it's the last thing i bought so it, it is it's back to that priority around new music that was what was driving our interest when we were teenagers and had the time to go digging for things but if you think about the amount of time that we used to spend digging through new racks i mean i know i know you're a fan of, of vinyl crate digging now yeah um but because there's so little of the music that you will find in a in a, in a, in a vinyl rack now is new that because it's much easier to resell a uh, 180 gram pressing of, of Dark Side of the Moon than it is to try and convince people that the new Anderson Pack record is worth buying buying on vinyl. Yeah, I never I never buy new vinyl really unless like it's something that like I bought Garage Days Revisited on vinyl just because you know it's like man this is <laughs> this is a cool yeah. record man I love this album but um like by and large I my vinyl stuff it's a very you know that's the thing like right now what sucks is like i can't really buy it the way i want to because it's a tactile experience um it's not really something that is um always uh, what's the word it's not a guaranteed win like yeah, what i yeah, what i used to do is i would go i would go to amoeba a lot Amoeba's gone. Like it's gonna move, but that location's but, gone. It hasn't, you know, it shut down when COVID struck. But, but I would go there every week and I would flip through the bins and every now and then something would pop up that was worth getting, you know, worth taking home and and uh it wasn't something that had been pressed yeah, it, it in the felt next special. Bit. Yeah, it was like old old stuff. Like I, I got like uh Shit, man! I bought like Black Sabbath, Heaven and Hell on vinyl, which is like Dio's first record with them. I got. But, like, but if you if you want to if you really want to go viral, you need to mm -hmm. go and catch COVID by crate digging a copy of Spreading the Disease by Anthrax, 
<laughs> you would come out if that was the headline. Oh my was, god! Was 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 vinyl buyer catches coronavirus from spreading the disease? Like you'd be you, you'd be huge if you can get them to embed a Bandcamp link in there. As long as you survive it, obviously, but you'd be huge. It'd be great. It'd be good marketing. Maybe fake it. Yeah, man. I, that's the one thing you know. Um, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. You know, nobody knows what's going to happen with, with COVID. I think, I don't know if you, if people are talking about this in your sphere or not, but, but just, you know, we're in this long waiting game. Uh, and yeah, it, I mean, it's, 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 it's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm joking about that, but it's, it's, yeah. it, it's the, the, the death rate is astronomical and alarming and heartbreaking. The lack of political will to, genuinely keep the keep people stable during this like the the all of the kind of bullshit around who gets what money and what happens to artists and and who you know the, the over here i know so many people who are just like musicians who are busting to get back and play not because i mean that you know uh, uh, we we'd all like to play but as long as our bills are being paid we're all going to be okay staying home for a while yeah but most of the people who I know who are most desperate to play are the ones who, who need it to, to, to live. Yeah. And the government has left them high and dry. And when you look at what's happened in Spain, where they basically froze all mortgage and rent payments for f four months or something, and a couple of other countries have done that and have done, I think Canada have done it, I see. And you go, yeah, that's the kind of level of intervention that is needed. Like nobody should be paying for a roof over their head at a time when going back to work will kill people. And for us as musicians, like the fact that we're even having to think about that, because we've always been this really precarious part of the, the, the economy, that part of that is because we're entrepreneurs by and large. And so we kind of, we exist in the gaps and we, we try and find new ways of making our art possible, but also, and part you know, that there's, there's a large part of what we do is, is kind of a gray economy. There's a cash economy to it. That, that means that it's not always easy to see exactly how and why we got paid what we got paid. And so I've got friends who, when the government did their calculations for how much you should get in your, you know, in your um, uh, furlough money or whatever it is, have done really, really well because they happened to be on a, on a tour where all that money was official. But I've got other friends who did pub gigs and restaurant gigs and a lot of it was cash in hand and, and some of their other work was was just, you know, kind of bits of, of gardening or whatever. And they're getting almost nothing because they were already living hand to mouth. And they were already well below the tax threshold because we've got good at living cheaply. So we have, we have that as a skill, but then you take away what we can do to earn and we're screwed because we don't have, so many of us don't have a nest egg. We don't have a bunch of money saved up that can carry us through this. And we shouldn't have to, you know, like, like this is just about saving other people's lives. This, is, this isn't about our own safety for the most part. It's about other people. By far the biggest danger here is giving it to someone else rather than getting it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, because, do you go out because, a lot? Like, do you, are you out in the world out there and stuff? I, are you... I've, I've been cycling loads because cycling is great because it's already socially distanced. If you're yes. within six feet of somebody on a bike, they're in danger or you are. Like, <laughs> you shouldn't be that close to anyone. So right. I've been, I mean, I've, I've, got, I've gone from doing... 10 mile rides to doing a hundred kilometer ride, which is about 65 miles. I, you know, and I, I can, 
I just spend hours and hours and hours a week out on a bike and it's been amazing. It's kept me sane. It's kept me fit. And it's when I've been out listening to your podcast. Oh, cool. It's great. I've, got, I've got a set of those um, bone conduction headphones so I can still hear what's going on around me, but listen to podcasts when I couldn't listen to music. And so, yeah, it's been amazing. It's been great. I've been listening to you. I've been listening to Soda Jerker, which is a songwriting podcast. I've been listening to Under the Black Light, which is a, from the African-American Policy Forum. That's an amazing podcast. And Jonathan Van Ness from uh, um, Queer Eye. I've been listening to Getting Curious with JVN. So I kind of, I've had a lot of time out on the bike with podcasts, but I've been going to shops as little as possible, occasionally going out for groceries, although most of ours we order, we get delivered. Um, I went out and bought a pair of cycle shoes um, and kind of went and felt deeply uncomfortable in a store, which had no one else in it. But I went in, took them off the shelf, bought them, brought them home and, you know, disinfected myself. But yeah, I've done, I've done almost nothing other than that. Um, because I, because, and this, this is where, you know, my, my role in the music economy is kind of interesting because the subscription keeps rolling on. So people's renewals of the subscription have been happening. So I'm still getting that money. I'm getting some new subscribers because sitting in the corner of my bedroom, making a weird noise into a recorder is what I've done for 20 years. Like that's been, that's been my career. I never needed studios. I never needed other musicians. I love collaborating, but I've always had that solo strand. So I've just focused on that. So I've just been sat here improvising and soundtracking how I feel the world is going and then having conversations with my subscribers on Zoom. So I've used it. So rather than doing a ton of public facing stuff where I've been trying to get attention, I've been talking to those, those people whose attention I already have and trying to provide a space where that connection through music becomes a safe space for people to gather. So a couple of, for a while, it was a couple of times a week. We would just, I would just kind of chuck up a Zoom link on Bandcamp for the subscribers and go, come on, come and hang out. And sometimes it would be me and one other person and we'd just chat for an hour. And sometimes it was me and 20 other people and it would be turned into a Q&A. That's cool. So man. I've done, it's been amazing. It's been, and it's been lovely. And I've got to know some of, my, some of my listeners and I've got to see old friends who I haven't seen in ages. And, I, and I've, done, I've had hangs with other bass players as well. I had a brilliant video hang with, Liam Wilson, who's somebody I have an awful lot of time for. And, uh, and another one, Nick Shangelos. Oh, and cool. Brian Bella. And, you know, just, just get hanging out with good, good people. Um, but yeah, cycling has just been my thing. So I've been cycling and playing bass and trying to get my PhD done. Nice. So, but yeah, no, I've not been going out because like when the pubs opened here two weeks ago, I kept seeing people on Facebook going, going, yeah, great. The pubs are going to be up. I'm like, are you high right now? Like, what the fuck? Why would you even think that that was a reasonable thing to do? In fact, no, you can't be high because if you were high, you'd be paranoid about getting ill. Like, that's the, the, nobody who's high is going to do that. You'd have to be, uh, yeah, I don't know. It just, it just seemed insane. Like, like, why would you go to a pub now? Like, the numbers are still going up. Yeah, it's... We're it's, heading towards the second thing. And just because the, some idiot in government has said, yeah, we need to get the economy moving. No, we don't. We oh, don't yeah. need to get the we need to stop people dying first. Yeah, I mean, would would someone? That's yeah. That's what I don't understand. Like, if there was a blizzard, and <laughs> yeah, exactly, we were in the middle of like this giant snowstorm, which I've experienced a lot of that weather. Nobody's trying to make everyone get back on the roads. Nobody's trying to, you know, like yeah, that's I, a really good way of putting it. I I remember. Uh, you know, I wasn't even in some of the worst parts of, of Northeast weather, but, but I lived in Boston for a few years 
Um, when I lived in New York, uh, you know, I was there for a long time. I remember one of the last snowstorms, basically they shut down everything. They yeah. shut down the trains early. It was like 2016. There was, there's sort of, it's not an arrogance, but there's just a lifestyle thing in New York where because of spatial reasons or whatever, people don't, yeah. I never bought a ton of groceries, man. I ne I've never shopped like I grocery shop now because since the pandemic, like that changed. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. for me, it would be like every three days I just run in and I'd buy enough of what I need. And then that was it. Yeah. Um, but they shut down the grocery store like at six and I wasn't aware of it until like nine. So it was like, well, I guess I'm having a couple of noodles tonight and like this 40 of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. like a PBR. Like that was it. It's like, I'm going to have to wait for shit to reopen tomorrow or the next day. Cause like I didn't, I didn't PBR go shopping. Brilliant. Yeah. But like, that's, that's what I mean. It's like nobody worried about what was going to happen. Cause it was like the snow was a very, the, the snow is a very visible thing. It's obvious what it's impeding. It's obvious yeah. what the risks yeah. are. Nobody can see COVID-19 with their, with their eyes. So it's yeah. like, you know, we're, we're fighting an invisible enemy. And for some reason, that's where all the stupid things that the stupid mechanisms that are not visible, like political ideologies and like fear. Well, you, well, you, you, but you, it's kind of been a really interesting illuminator of the kind of things that people think make them invincible in the world. Because, you know, the people are going like, I'm an American, therefore I, I, I you know, no one tells me what to do. It's like, yeah, but your, your nationality doesn't protect you from a virus. Yeah. Like your politics, your political affiliation doesn't protect you from a virus. Being right wing or left wing or whatever, that's not, that doesn't stop you from getting this. The only thing that stops you from getting it is not being around someone else who's got it. Like that's, yeah. that's it. You just yeah. have to stay away. And if you are out, you cover your face. Yeah. 2020 and is, yeah. That's what you do. That's kind of like, like, like that's, and it, it is the great leveler in that respect that, that there's no there's no escape from those two realities and it's easier to to do those things if you are if you live in a big house if you i mean like i've been quarantined with my family so there's me and my wife and my son mm -hmm. and that i and you know i i think it would have been much much harder if i'd been on my own for the friends of mine who are you know you 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 you, you live on your own don't you yeah i'm i'm all by um, myself I mean, that's, that's a completely different experience. And I think that, that, that the various conversations about creating bubbles that people can kind of be a part of where they basically function like, like families across, you know, a, a couple of buildings, I think that makes, that makes a whole load of sense just because that is psychically, you know, that you, you end up psychically estranged from the world around you like that. But it's but weird, being man. Stuck, being stuck in my family, like there's no one else in the world I'd rather be stuck in, stuck in with than my wife or my son. That's great. And we don't, we, we've got, you know, it's, it's a small house, but we, we're able to kind of find space of our own. And, and the bike has been really helpful, just kind of getting out of the house and leaving them too with more space yeah. to hang out. Living alone is um, weird. Cause uh, yeah, yeah. I, you know, I mean like, uh, yeah, you know, like the other day, um, you know, I have this routine where if I go shopping, um, even though it's, it seems to be more on the, on the accurate level scientifically that you're more apt to catch this from somebody because of the droplets in the air than you are from the surface, I'll still disinfect everything I buy from the grocery store just for good measure. You know, like I'm not as like crazy about it, but what I do is I'll open the door, you know, like I'll open yeah. the door in my yeah. place and I won't close the door until I'm done disinfecting stuff. Cause yeah. it's like, last thing is I'll wash my, oh no, I'll disinfect the door. 
then I'll wash my hands. And then that's when that whole exercise is done. It's become this really weird, stupid routine of like, that's like half OCD, half just what I think (laughs) good preventive measure is. So anyway, I had this door open and, uh, you know, I don't know if anything flies into my apartment when that happens or not. But the other night I was taking a shower as I do. That's like the last thing I do before I crash, take a shower. There was this bee that looked like it had drowned in the water. And I didn't yeah. notice it, but it was at the, it was at the bottom of the shower. And I was like, how did that thing get in here? Like, cause I don't have any windows yeah. open. And, and so I totally forgot that I had the door open for like probably 10 or 15 minutes, but yeah. I went through this whole exercise where I Googled bees near shower drain. <laughs> and trust me when I say you don't want to Google stuff like that. Cause then it's yeah. like, do I have a beehive in my pipes? Like what, you know, like it, it just became this really bizarre thing. And then I realized, Oh wait, no, I have the door open for like, an, for like 10, 15 minutes. I'm positive it flew in here. Michael Caine's going to show up with a, with a remake of the swarm. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, man. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, dude, America, if, if anyone had any, 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 uh, any, uh, question as to why our, our test scores are so low, 2020 is proving that in spades, you know, like not, you know, it's just, you've got people. America has always been, you know, in so many ways has been, has presented the best and the worst of humanity. Sure. Across the board. I mean, it's what I used to love about going to LA when I first (laughs) went out there in kind of 19, in 99, 2000, like I'd never been to the States before I went to Nam in 99. And I remember going there and just, it just being, like everything was on the surface, like nothing was hidden. It was like either, right. wow, you're absolute dog shit. You are a garbage human. And I'm quite happy to be that. Or somebody was just amazing. And you kind of meet people and they'd be like totally <laughs> inspiring. And it's like, yeah. yeah, this is brilliant. Because because there's there's like the, the, there's a sort of refreshing absence of depth to it in that way, if that makes sense. Sure. It was just, no, like, it was just like people would just have a single dimension to them, but it was a really inspiring one. Yeah, and I kind of liked that, and that, that, and and you know, America has often had terrible politics, and then really imaginative responses to that. And hip hop is absolutely part of that. You know, the the the, the conditions that it, that produced hip hop and the conditions that produced punk. Oh yeah, were, our, our were, music and cinema are very much like direct reflections of like uh, the the things that have happened on the in the on the global scale. You know. But, but when you think about their the influence on politics on a, on a macro level, the, the, none of those things, none of those things mattered. Like we still ended up with Trump. Like we still, oh, yeah. you know, that we we went from from uh, public enemy and and Nirvana, and you know this kind of incredible backlash to the Reagan years. And it's like, yeah, but things have just got inexorably worse all the way through. Yeah, and we had this kind of blip with Obama when it, when at least domestically, you know, America began to sort out a whole bunch of stuff. I mean, it was still drone bombing the rest of the planet, but. Right, right. But a bunch of cool shit was happening within America and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, uh, other things got ignored, but, but it, it really felt symbolically, certainly it felt like a, like a, like a, a step in the right direction. I think, I think uh, to a, to a large degree, that's where a lot of people unfortunately checked out. And I think yeah. that that created right. a huge problem because, um, you know, like, you know, I, I know that this is a book that not everybody likes, but like in White Fragility, yeah, one thing great. she talks about is how a lot of people feel like 
voting for Obama was almost like a way to absolve for the sins of whatever. And it, yeah. that really wasn't the case. And, and, and in a lot of ways, Obama made decisions that didn't really improve the lives of black people at all. Like, nope. um, and it, that, and, and, granted, he de- and, he, and he deported more, more, you know, uh, undocumented migrants than any previous pre- uh, president. And, you know, there were, there were things about the Obama years that were, I mean, apart from the else, they kind of show how, unless the president is 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 a despot like mm-hmm. you've got at the moment they're basically controlled by the people around them yeah i mean i remember here i remember watching a documentary about the clinton years and how actually clinton had universal health care plans when he first came into power and the rest of the people in in those kind of, of sort of fiscal departments just came in and went, right well that's not going to happen so what are we going to do instead and he was like what do you mean that was my policy that was that was what we put forward and it was like no you're not going to do that and the, the obstruction was there to stop him from doing it. And it was the president didn't have that much power. And I, and I wonder how much of Obama's uh, fuck up around Guantanamo, you know, the fact that his, his whole pledge was we're going to shut Guantanamo down and he didn't. Yeah. And you go, well, was that, is that that he was lying? Is he, did he not care? Is it that he couldn't? Is it that he kind of got to a place where he realized that there were limits to his power? And it, or was he more focused on sorting out um, the Affordable Care Act? Did that take up his attention? Because you know he's only got so much attention to apply. But but it did mean that there was this gaping hole in the list of promises. And uh, but again, American discourse gets really complicated around those kind of things because because especially when you have the intersection of uh, um, racial politics and politics of, of kind of justice and, po- and 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 poverty and class and all these kind of things that that kind of come together in in ways that are deeply uncomfortable if you're not honest about your history and same yeah. in britain i mean you know we, the fact that we're still talking about there are still people in britain who think that the empire was a good thing is just it's so shocking like the idea that the the, the various genocides that we enacted around the globe were somehow okay because we civilized nations or we left them with a new flag or some bullshit. And it's like, no, you don't, you don't get to, 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 you know, commit whataboutery when, when you've wandered into a country and, and starved 5 million people. Like that's not, that's never okay. There's no, there's no version of history that says, oh, well, but we were doing this somewhere else. It's like, no, that's never okay. I think emotion, both, yeah, I think emotion. Both, but both of our countries are terrible at that. And yeah. It's it's interesting the role that musicians and artists have played in elevating those stories, and I think that we do we still do have those. And it's kind of funny how, you know, again there is that that old white guy conversation of like, yeah, you know, music's not what it used to be, and we don't have heroes like we used to have. And but yeah, except that an awful lot of of our old heroes were actually would would now be in prison as sex offenders if they if they got caught for what they did. Yeah, I, and I, uh, yeah. And, and 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 we do we do have incredibly eloquent brilliant artists who are making sense of the world as it is and an awful lot of them are hip-hop in hip-hop and r&b actually yeah. that's that there's a bunch of bullshit within the mainstream of course but there's also alongside that there's a political discourse happening yeah. um in, in in particularly in hip-hop that is um is the one musical thing that makes sense of where the world is at and it's incredible it, the one thing I like about, well, first I was going to say this. Um, I think the biggest issue with political things until people can separate emotions from the way yeah. they look at politics, it's never going to be 
it's never going to be what it quote unquote should be, you know, like, um, the problem is, is like, um, we have that show. I don't know what's going to happen with that show, uh, in light of Nick Cannon saying the shit that he said, but like, um, the mass singer really is how people should treat politics because I think people need to hear people's ideas before before they can attach an identity to it. Because I think if people actually judge things by, by, by uh, ideas and the words versus like who's saying the words, I think it would be very eye opening for people. You well, know, there, there think, was a, there were a bunch of experiments with that when they early on in the in the Trump years, where people kind of going to, going to them saying, "How many of these things that the president has said do you agree with?" Right, and they were all Obama quotes, and the yep. person was led to believe they were Trump, and they went, "Yeah, all of them." They went, "Well, by the way, those are all President Obama," and so they they did that. Over here, there's there's a website that runs every time there's a there's a um every time there's an election. I think it's VoteForPolicies.co.uk something like that, where you basically you do a survey on your on policy positions like what do you think about europe what do you think about immigration what do you think about economics what do you think about the environment and 80 percent of britons would uh, in, in a blind test like that would vote for the green party yeah but we have this the, their policies are absolutely in line with public opinion all across the board it's great and, and 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 but as soon as you remove it from as soon as you say that's green party position you go yeah but they're never going to get in so we're not going to vote, vote for them and our Green Party's not, not uh, you know, they're a lot more robust than yours, fortunately. Yeah, um, it's, it's, uh, it's bizarre. Um, the other thing I was going to say about hip-hop being that voice for political, uh, I guess, political um, critique and, and the prism of, like, truth. What I like about hip-hop, too, is it doesn't romanticize itself the no. way other music does. Um, it's always been something that sort of updates and, and granted, you know, like there's, there's value in listening to all the classic stuff or even like what doesn't seem classic, but because of the, the passage of time, it is classic. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. like dead, I was listening to dead Prez, um, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. a couple weeks ago and I was like, man, they, they were saying some real, I mean, a lot of the stuff is still quite relevant, but, but the thing that's really interesting about hip hop is that it does not inherently build a bridge to where it comes from. Like it, it's very much like this is what it is right now. And you're either in or you're out, you know, well, it, has, it has kind of elder statesmen. And so, yeah. but it's, it's dynastic. So their, their presence is often to confer meaning on newer artists. Yeah. So you have somebody like the fact that, that Eminem was a, and, and Snoop were both Dre proteges, you know, that there's, there's this kind of this sort of this, this, this process of someone who is already famous going, well, then therefore this is the next person that they're bringing along. So rather than the, all the focus being on that one person, it's actually on the sort of the dynasty, which is, which is the thing that happens in music from around the world. But if you, you know, if you were a tabla player, you would be learning within a tradition and that tradition would be traced back through generations. And the newest person in that, in that, in that, tradition would be the one who the focus was on and they might be innovating on top of what's happened before but their initial your initial interest in what they were doing would be because they were part of this dynasty and i think hip-hop tends to work like that there tends to be this thing where that that significance is passed down through generations of hip-hop artists and i think in the uk there's it's really interesting how many 
of the kind of big grime artists guest on each other's records. That it's a real, it's a big party. They're all helping each other out all the time. And and I think it was at Glastonbury that um, uh, when Stormzy headlined Glastonbury last year, and he came out and he listed like something like thirty or forty grime artists, kind of gave them all a shout out in the in the context of his set. And the significance of that, of him being able to do, being able to do that, even you know, knowing forty other artists in his scene, and we got to name check them all, and put them on the map. You know, there is that sense that it's not, it's not about kind of holding it all to themselves. It's actually that that recognition that that the scene is stronger when it's a multiplicity of voices. Yeah, and I and I think that that again, I think I think from, from a grind point of view, that's that's a function of it of it growing up and becoming a thing within the age of social media. And that that's how they've all got known is by being on each other's YouTube videos and whatnot. Um, but I think that that as a culture is a really healthy thing to do when it's not just people wanging on about having been, you know, about how great Zeppelin, Zeppelin were 45 years ago. It's like, who cares? Like, this doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. Um, well, I, I think, you know, it's, it's strange because, you know, I, I love that band. I love a lot of those bands from that era. And I think, I think just if we're talking about just the music, um there's a lot to be checked out and, and learn from but but i think also what's weird is uh, especially like the hippie era stuff like woodstock and yeah i think the thing that's really hard for people to grasp and no one really points this out so much because i think it probably gets people into trouble but a lot of those people became what they were sort of rallying against Oh, absolutely. Yeah, and that's yeah. a weird thing because rock and roll isn't really that old an art form. So, yeah, yeah, you know, that's the weird thing about like legacy artists and like the spirit of what they're doing their thing. And, you know, it's like what, what, it, what are they actually trying to do now? You know, like, and, and so yeah. um, I think that's the, that's the part that is probably the most unpleasant to, uh, to kind of accept. Some people do it really well, though. Like, I mean, I, I, I know, like, why people would have critical things to say about, like, maybe the way Zeppelin behaved in the 70s or maybe, like, some of the things they took, from, took their music from. But what I do kind of think is cool is they didn't play the let's do a reunion tour card well, they, at all. Well, yeah, no, they did, they did the Page and Plant thing and fell out again. Yeah, um, and then they did that, that, that concert when Ahmet Erdogan passed on and it was yeah, like yeah, a yeah. one-time thing. And it was cool to see, yeah. but I'm, I think it's cool when, when like someone will decide, Hey, we're not going to, we're not, we can't really do this like as a tour. So we're not going uh, to. I mean, I think, I think, I think one of the, one of the tricky things about any of these conversations is that fame is not good for anybody. Like there's nobody who thrives through being famous at all. It's, it's, it, it leads to a degree of isolation from other people's meaningful input into your life. That is unhelpful. And some people survive it. There are people who manage to thrive in spite of it. I have friends who are extremely famous, who are lovely and haven't become sociopathic assholes, but it's normally because they've engineered their lives in such a way that they have space around them for other people to have input into their lives. I was thinking about this when, we, when you were talking about Keith Jarrett before. Right. And how fame can work in different scenes. But actually having, being in a place where your professional life is, leaves you surrounded by people who are on a payroll and whose criticism of you would result in their 
financial instability or okay, like de- decimation. Yeah. yeah, well, 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 just or people who are just have a financial investment in reinforcing your worldview. Okay. And so what you end up with is with people who who, and and it, it happens at a fairly low level. I mean, you know, I mean that 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 you don't have to be particularly famous for this to, for you to end up like this. But unless you are continually subjecting yourself to a community of people who have no skin in the game when it comes to your art or your work and are able to talk to you about the way that the world is and you are able to look at things i mean this is the that isolation has produced some examples of people kind of being being able to speak into situations that they would otherwise not have been able to like that amazing um clip of david bowie on mtv where he's basically why why you're a bunch of racists which is extraordinary that you know why do you, why don't you have any black artists on here and his fame is what gave him the, the the opportunity to do that but the flip side of that is you end up with bono and bob geldorf trying to speak on behalf of a bunch of ngos about global global economics and doing it without any sense of the incredibly complex world of of charities and non-governmental organizations working on poverty reduction that they're in the middle of, but doing it like it's a rock band press release and pissing everyone off. And you're like, and, and there wasn't anybody around them to say, guys, you can't do that before they got to there. So they end up having that conversation with the people whose, whose work they've just shat on. They end up having that conversation via newspapers, via interviews, which is the horrific way to talk to anybody. So the, the, we're constantly trying to rationalize the behavior of famous people and either celebrate it or look at it as being perverse or whatever, you know, fucked up. But actually the fame component within it means that we kind of need to see it through that lens and go, well, actually everything that happens around them is screwed up in some way and is dysfunctional and is built to, I mean, the, the, the structure of the industry around them is built to keep them pliant and commercially viable for other people's benefit rather than their own. And so any isolation they've managed to achieve from that is great. You know, so Zeppelin are, 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 were really interesting because they were, I mean, there, there were very few bands who ever achieved success on the level that they did, where they could actually, you know, go from country to country without going through immigration. They were, you know, uh, this incredible transnational property um, and yeah, on a level that, that I, I don't think I've ever, uh, there are very, very few bands who've ever, ever operated at that level. Um, but it did result in, you know, a bunch of horrific, horrific behavior and stuff that should have landed them in prison. Sure. Um, and that, 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 and again, those, those become part of these, these, this ongoing perpetuation of the narrative of, of, uh, rich white men shitting on, uh, women and minorities and it being overlooked in favor of some other narrative of their greatness and that's that's a real problem and that's one of the reasons why i quite like being utterly obscure within music i like not having to deal with that shit i like not being not being on tour with those people because i don't have to make excuses for them um and i you know i've I've met extraordinarily famous people in different contexts and i have a number of friends who are, who are very successful who who i have dealt with this really well it's not like everybody who's famous is an asshole no but 
the degree to which they are able to navigate that space is not a given and it's and nobody thrives on it nobody actually nobody actually takes that and says oh this is what's going to make my life great if you're not already an incredibly decent person you will not become one through being famous no not at all um i mean because because you end up existing in this arrested development and exactly. uh you just don't have i don't know it's like you you really don't have a um firm grasp of like what what is actually going on with with regular folks you know I mean, you what, it's, it's interesting that if you think about every kind of ancient or or substantive mystical or spiritual tradition they make day-to-day living an incredibly important elevated part of what you do if you're a monk in a monastery of any in any religion you spend a bunch of your time gardening and tending to things and looking after it and making food and cooking so as soon as you separate yourself from what is seen as the mundane stuff of life you lose that connection to what it is to be human and I think that touring can do that to people. Touring can leave people in this state where they are handed PDs for a day. And it's like, and you need to be at the venue for this time and you turn up and you get worshipped for two hours. So you have this incredibly boring life where you don't even get to cook for yourself. You don't get to wash your own clothes or cut your own lawn. Yeah. And, and you just end up with, this, with losing all perspective on what it is to be human and what it is to share space with other people who aren't, aren't financially invested in being there. Oh, and that's yeah. really tough. I really feel sorry for people who, who kind of, you know, and it's, it was really interesting what Victor was saying on, on the Berkeley thing last night about how, you know, this time has actually been really valuable for him to reconnect with his family and realize that, you know, he's, he, there was a bunch of stuff that his wife did all the time in terms of looking after the kids. And it's great that he's recognizing that. I think that's really important for musicians to, to find that time. And I feel really lucky that during the time when my son was youngest, I didn't have to tour in order to pay for nappies and baby food. Yeah. I was able to to do social media work um, in London and around, and I wasn't away as much as I would have been. Yeah. And so while it, while it was difficult anyway, just because parenting is, um, uh, I, I did, wasn't on the road with a band for 18 months while that happened. And I have so many friends who got stuck and that was the only option they had was to go out on tour. Yeah. Um, I don't think touring is, I think it, I don't think it's for everybody. Uh, I was going to um, wrap with this because we're almost yeah. at the three hour mark. <laughs> I may split this up. Who knows, man? I was going to say, feel free to edit. <laughs> yeah, no, no, that's cool. I, I might, uh, I might split it into two because it's all been pretty good stuff. I feel like, you know, that, that's been, I, I'm going to edit this little part out anyway, but like, that's been <laughs> the one thing I've thought about. It's like, you know, am I doing a disservice by like not, you know, that's why I went to one episode a week. It's like, I don't want people to sleep on the good things that are here. So maybe like an hour and a half, is, if it's going to be like a three hour show, then maybe an hour and a half episode <laughs> is probably do two weeks of that. And that's the way to do it, which is cool, man. I'm into it. But um, I was going to say like, do you, and this isn't really, this isn't really like a fair question to ask anybody because nobody can see around this ship, but like, do you think do you think there's going to be a permanent effect on touring because of covid like do you think it's going to kill it do you think it's just going to simply alter it and it'll return over a series of years like what do you what do you think's going to happen as far as that goes or has that even been something I don't, I don't know I, mean, I think I, we're in such a strange space with it because 
I mean, there's, there, there is a weird dimension to this in that, that there are illnesses all over the planet that kill people and people see them as a, as a acceptable risk and they try and defend themselves against them. And the problem with this one is that it's also impacting the West. And normally we're, we, we have vaccines and we have ways of kind of preventing this stuff. So we don't have major outbreaks of malaria in Britain and <laughs> Britain and America. So we don't look at that and we don't have out and we we have sufficient medical support that that dysentery isn't a thing that kills people. Um, but this stuff has been happening all over the rest of the world for, for however long. So it's going to be interesting to see uh, to what degree we decide what is considered acceptable risk, because I don't know if we can wipe it out. And it's not looking like there's a vaccine. So is it just going to change the way we live? If it is, then the entire economy and the entire way the economy is structured is going to have to change as well, because we cannot carry on like we are now. We would have to go to a much more redistributive model. Um, I mean, because the stupid thing is we could fix all the kind of short-term financial problems right now by taxing billionaires. Like, that's right. not a hard thing to do. You just, you put, and it's not just an income tax, you put a wealth tax on all the billionaires and you go, great, we're having all of that. Like, we're just, because you don't need it. No one needs it. And at the moment, people are dying in order for you to have big numbers in an Excel spreadsheet. So fuck you. We're having that money and it's going to pay for people to live with dignity. So we can sort that out like that. That's possible to do the, the, the idea of a super tax on robotic, robotic jobs is going to be easy. Um, and at that point, I think once it, if, if, if on some level we introduce universal basic income within any given country, the musicians can start to do much more creative things because they're not thinking about how much they need to make per audience member to make it worthwhile. You know, I've spent the last 20 years doing gigs, sometimes to 50, 80, 100 people, but sometimes to six or seven people. And I don't divide them up in their meaning and their purpose as artistic events based on the size of the audience. So I've done really, really meaningful gigs to seven or eight people. I've done yeah. gigs that I've recorded and released to handfuls of people that have been amazing. So when I, when someone says, Oh, in order to, to do a socially distanced gig, you can only get 10 people in this building. I'm like, great. I'm in, let's go for it. And <laughs> right. when, and when I don't have to then say, right, but everybody's got to pay 40 pounds for a ticket. Cause otherwise I can't make enough money to live. When I don't have to say that because my, my income is coming from elsewhere, then I can get much more creative about where and when I play. And, and we can start to structure different kinds of performance. Music takes on a different, different angle. And suddenly the power of stadium rock to generate cash disappears completely. So we'll have an aesthetic response to this. People will start making more intimate music forms. That folk singing, you know, in a way that is storytelling to small groups of people might come back. Outdoor performing is suddenly, you know, areas that can, can support that are suddenly going to become profitable arenas stadiums those kind of gigs fuck it that's going to be a disaster but we're still at the moment most of the responses we're seeing are still ones where people are trying to say how can we get a space that's big enough that we can get a thousand people in it yeah you go why you're only thinking about that because you're thinking about money not thinking about experience yeah as of yesterday my friend plays in a band that's i would say it's like fairly top tier you know so like they Mm. they are booked through live nation and stuff and he said that the man, yeah, you know, I don't, I don't believe I'm like indicting anybody by mentioning this because I'm not dropping the names, but like, uh, 
He was saying that, like, basically Live Nation was saying fall 2021 at the soonest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That sounds about right. Long, it's a long fucking time. And, and, but even that relies on, on certain things happening in between, like either Absolutely. people wising up and actually social distancing properly or us finding some kind of vaccine or your suggestion to uh, Teddy to find a spray that means we can see it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we're all sort of flying blind. I, I, you know, we've talked candidly about this here and there. Like, I think personally, I'm trying to move away from touring. Uh, yeah. yeah. I think, I think, so. I think that's wise. I think, I think, I think to, 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 to be relying on that for next year, even I think at this point it seems reckless. Yeah. Well, I just mean even in general, like even before yep. COVID was a thing, um, you know, like last year, I I was really kind of looking at the existential glass as far yeah. as like, okay, like what parts of this do I want to do? What parts of this can I let go of? And in touring, uh, I kind of realized, you know, I sometimes I like it, sometimes I don't. I think a lot of musicians feel like that. Um, I don't know that it's something I would want to totally eliminate from my income, but I think because it really won't be an option now, it's like, okay, it's time to figure out what's going to fill that void and what's going to, um, enable me to, to, as you say, keep things, um, keep things moving and, and, and like ensure the ability to create stuff, you know, the yeah, sustainability. I mean, I think, you know, the idea that you could, that if you, again, if you didn't have to do it for money, the, the, the idea that you and, was it Mark Lattieri, was it you, you were playing with just before this? Yeah. Yep. I mean, the idea that you and Mark could just go and sit in a room somewhere and play a bunch of music to a handful of people sat however far apart, like, and do it. I, I think what making that kind of low stakes music making possible changes aesthetics because the kind of risks that you get to take in that space when there aren't, 300 people and it's not a high dollar gig and it's not, it doesn't come with those expectations. You end up with people making much more dangerous music. Yeah. Much more kind of edgy, surprising and often hilarious music. Like, like music becomes fun again when people start taking massive risks with what they're doing mm -hmm. and the pressure to make a record and then tour it and tour it exactly like the record has actually pushed music into an incredibly safe space performance wise. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I find myself kind of out on a limb because I don't ever play the same thing twice. Yeah. And I try and respond to the room and I record it all so I can release it, but I don't ever try and remember anything. Like I just, I quite often reprogram my pedal board on the day of a gig or the day of a recording and come up with something completely different just to see what it will do to what I play because it's all, because I, I create a space that is intentionally low stakes in that way where screwing up is part of the fun rather than, you know, a, a huge travesty that if I go off on some tangent or something weird happens, then that's part of my engagement with an audience who aren't sat what, wanting me to produce a thing that they already know. Like they're yeah. open to me taking them or I don't know, us going together on an adventure. And I think, so I think adventure-based music and the potential for exploring that when we get away from the idea that a gig needs to gross five grand in order to pay for the tour bus like once we get away from that we can start doing much more creative things so what i hope is and this again ties in absolutely with what you've been saying that i hope people are able to, to to pursue a much more kind of organic and 
integrated view of their artistry uh after this and actually do things that feel meaningful to them rather than just feel like they're chasing a, a model of success that's that was defined by somebody else yeah well man thank you so much for being for on more about steve thanks so much great. for listening new episodes every wednesday yeah. be well thank folks. you so much likewise man i'll talk to you soon